I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. the windows put away the weed if you're not married just don't have sex just don't okay and whatever you do don't go down into the cellar to check that pesky fuse box because it's friday the 13th folks and to celebrate we've watched all the friday the 13th so we could share with you all the scares all the gory bits all the frankly ridiculous plot twists and of course all the (laughs) or is it yeah apparently it is but I, i just don't hear that yeah. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. hear that. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, uh, I'm Duncan, and this is Simon, and uh, this is very much Simon's baby, I think. Friday the 13th is a, a big one for you, isn't it? Sure is. I just want to start with talking about Friday the 13th, the, uh, which will probably be a title of a Friday the 13th in the future, Origins. <laughs> <laughs> so, I so hope not. <laughs> followed by uh, Revolutions, of course. Yeah. Yep. Revolutions. Um, so yeah, just just the origins of the actual superstition of Friday the Thirteenth. Triskai decaphobia is the irrational fear of the number thirteen. One belief is that it has its roots in Christianity. When the Last Supper occurred, thirteen people present, and it was on the thirteenth. However, that was like a Thursday, I guess, because Good Friday was the next day, so oh, it yeah. quite fit. Um, and then there's also Friday the Thirteenth in thirteen oh seven, was when King Philip of France had most of the Knights Templars imprisoned. And they reckon that it was that was something to do with about it, but the date is different. In many cultures, apparently in Italy, it is Friday the seventeenth. Really? Yeah. And um, the Friday the thirteenth series is even amended to to the date of Friday the seventeenth in Italy when they sell it. This is crazy. Like I'm a big fan of the series, and and I'm learning stuff yeah. right now. <laughs> Whereas thirteen is actually often considered a lucky number in Italian. So there's doesn't seem to be any definitive um, etymology of Friday the 13th, but actually, because of the fear of the day, the world is often actually a safer place because people are more cautious. Right. Yeah, with, you know, like dangerous activities or sure. driving, and others take the day off work, and some don't even leave the house, which apparently affects productivity of working. I would take the day off work only if I could watch Friday the 13th movies all day. Exactly. Well... Perfect segue, because if you are susceptible to a nervousness around the date, then just maybe take off each Friday the 13th and uh, watch a Friday the 13th movie in the safety of your own home. Um, and there are two Friday the 13th for the next three years, including this year. So good. Oh, look, before we get into the films, I've just got a quick point to make at us, and that is that you're going to have to get used to us talk, taking great delight in people's death, <laughs> inventiveness of their murders, and the gruesomeness of their demises. Which might seem weird if you've just heard us, you know, sounding like liberal snowflakes while watching Death Wish films in last month's podcast. <laughs> but here's the thing about Friday the 13th. They no more take place in the real world than the Roadrunner cartoons you watched when you were a kid did, you know? Mm. Uh, Death Wish wants to convince us it's holding a slightly exaggerated mirror up to the real world. But Friday the 13th, it's just fantasy. Yeah. Pure fantasy. Like the Roadrunner cartoons, you tune in in part for the delight in unreal death. 
laughing as the coyote tumbles into the abyss is a little different than the snigger you have when some pesky teen gets a party horn jammed in your eye in Friday the 13th, The New Blood. <laughs> and like the Roadrunner, you tune in for the next instalment, knowing that they'll have found a new way to, to off someone, say tying them up in a sleeping bag and swing them at a tree, <laughs> one of my favourites. Uh, just like there'd be a new way for the coyote's plan to turn to custard, resulting in a giant acme weight crushing them like a pancake. <laughs> so I don't think you need to take this too seriously. Yeah. Let's get on to some Camp Crystal Lake memories. What what brought you to Friday the 13th, the series, Simon? What are your first memories of it? Oh, well, I think I've told you this story. I don't think I've told it on mic before. <laughs> but I was kind of fascinated by the big VHS video store covers you saw at the shops. You yeah. Know? And I had a friend at school who used to have Fangoria magazine. And, and I was just enraptured by these pictures, you know, and I mm-hmm. wanted to know what it was all about. So I started trying to get hold of these VHS movies. And I remember at the time... I wasn't old enough to get these movies out on my own, so my mum had to get me Friday the 13th Part 5, <laughs> and I ended up watching it with my mother. All right. Um, which is weird, because it's Part 5. It's the middle of it in the series. And actually, it's one that relies on a lot of mythology from the previous films. Yeah. But we've got none of that to back it up. So it's just this random set of teens getting killed. It's also, unfortunately, has probably more TNA than anyone in the series. <laughs> so watching that with my mum, oh, it was pretty And she kept letting you get them out? I don't, I don't recall. I think probably I started getting them off from friends and, and stuff after that. Yeah. But I definitely remember renting this one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Well, I actually kind of came to Friday the 13th quite late actually viewing them um, compared to my earlier horror experiences. I, yep. I'd seen Alien, uh, Omen, and Nightmare on Elm Street at a pretty impressionable age, like probably about like nine or ten yep. so t- times when I shouldn't be watching those. Friday the 13th was probably a bit later. It was probably like kind of like 12 or something. So it's a bit more um, kind of adjusted to it by that age. Yeah, to be fair, I'd seen The Omen and The Exorcist before I got to this. Yeah. Again, VHS tapes in the video store, particularly for me, uh, was Friday the 13th, 3, 4, 5, and 6. I think that they were the ones that I remember because it's probably around about 83 to about 87. So um, those... And they were massive. Those Friday the 13th, everyone talked about them. They were the kind of taboo films to see. And uh, they were so striking, you know, like the hockey mask and the knife and the blood. And, and they, were, they I remember them all having those subtitles of like, I, I very vividly remember the, the final chapter and A New Blood. Yeah. And I remember those posters that have posters on the... Yeah. And this is all in a VHS store, part of a charming age, long gone. But yeah, so they're my kind of first memories. I'm a bit hazy on which films I... Saw first. I think it was three and four were probably the ones I saw first. I can't quite remember, but I definitely remember the last one I watched in my kind of uh, in my prime Camp Crystal Lake victim teenage years. Um, that was would have been Jason Takes Manhattan on VHS when I was probably around fifteen. Right. So that was the last one that I saw. Um, and before this podcast, I'd seen definitely seen parts one, two, three, four, six, eight, and nine. And like. Again, I'm still haziest whether I've seen five or seven. Yeah. Um, but I had definitely never seen part ten. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I dipped out at seven a little bit. I definitely saw them all, mm. but seven was in my prime viewing. Right. I would say three to seven. Yeah. Was definitely my prime viewing stage. Yeah. Um, eight. Yeah, eight. Um, <laughs> and it took me a while to get to nine. I remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but ten, I think I, I I jumped into pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So ha, ha, here's how we're going to do this. Firstly, we divided the films into odds and evens. Duncan took the evens, I took the odds. We discarded Freddy versus Jason since it's not a pure Friday film. 
Um, and we didn't bother with remake because I, I don't know about you. I couldn't face it. I, I really cannot face it. Yeah, well, I think this is interesting because obviously we've both seen Freddy vs. Jason. In fact, I think it's the only Jason film I've ever seen with you. At oh, the right. Movie, sure, at the sure. movies. Yeah, we, we did. Went, we went did. to the movies to see it. Uh, and I have seen the Friday the 13th remake. Oh, right. Uh, and you haven't. I haven't. And, which is uh, incredible. It's it's really because I'm such a fan of the series. Yeah. But the idea of uh, starting again when they were in a perfect position to do 12 and then 13. Yeah. The 13th, Friday the 13th, and see they went back to zero. Yeah. So I've never been able to face it for that reason. I mean, I've seen all these films several times at least. Yeah. Uh, but I've never seen the remake. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so we discarded with those last, well, yeah, with the last two, basically. Yeah. yeah. So what we're going to do is we'll judge the films on kind of a shifting set of criteria. And on a scale of 0 to 13 hockey masks. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, we might score, say, Friday the 13th, part 3, 10 ho- hockey masks out of 13 for the quality of the kills. Mm. Or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And then we'll have, uh, we'll also have, um, you know, lead protagonist and, and a favourite of mine, Jason Myth Exposition. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I think they'll change a bit depending on what the film has. Absolutely. Yeah. Well. But one of the things I've been wondering about is when we did this Divi Arm, what were you kind of thinking, oh, I got that one. And what were you like, yes, I got that one about. What what excited you? What were you uh, dreading? Uh, um, I was really excited about, uh, obviously, I got the even, so I got four and six, uh, which were the, the ones I, I'm familiar with and yep. um, I know I enjoy. Uh, I, I was I, I was kind of dreading doing two and eight. Right. Um, and I I was happy to do Jason X because I hadn't seen it. That yeah, was the only reason. Yeah. So I was kind of split, really. You know, okay. like, I, yeah, yeah, I was too. I think going into it, I was quite excited to be doing seven because I have real fond memories of it. Um, five, of which was the first one I've seen, so I was excited to see that again. Mm. I was dreading nine. I'd yeah. seen nine, and I, I, I couldn't really tell you what happened in it. Um, mm. I knew it had a really interesting beginning, but I was kind of not looking forward to nine. Three, I was intrigued by because I know you, you we talked about it. Off cam, uh, off mic before, so I was kind of intrigued to get into that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and 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 the original, of course. Oh, and the original, yeah. I mean, the original I've seen a couple of times now. Yeah, actually promoted it once. Right. Yeah, yeah. I promote did a promo for it. Um, what a dream job that is. Yeah, great fun. Um, only fifteen seconds. Oh man, how did get into it? Could have made a fifteen minute out of that. Oh, easy, <laughs> easy. There was this boy named Jason Voorhees, drowned Bristol Lake about thirty years ago. None of the counselors heard him. A bunch of years went by, and everyone forgot about it. And that's when the murder started to happen. Okay, so I guess we should get into it with Friday the 13th, the original. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's a tendency, we talked about this before, to overstate a film's quality once it becomes a kind of a success story or, or, or some sort of icon. Um, hence the overwhelming love for Halloween, and we've talked about that film before. And I still find it a bit disappointing. I think Halloween's overrated. Right. And it gets a lot of love, frankly, because it made a lot of money. It, it was right at the beginning of the wave, mm. and it had so many sequels. And I think I see some of that happening with Friday 13. There's a sort of reverence for it as being, you know, this film that started, a, a almost kick-started a genre and started mm. a wave of films that followed it. I don't know that... It, it deserves it. I was always surprised by hearing that because I thought when I first saw it, it was kind of a fairly artless slog of a film. Mm. I was curious to find out how it how it worked on a fresh viewing. So I just really quickly go over the plot, which is as simple as always. Yeah, uh, A bunch of teens head off to Camp Crystal Lake, ominously referred to as Camp Blood by the locals, and the wonderful prophet of doom, Crazy Ralph, who utters the immortal words, it's got a death curse. <laughs> He's so camp, hey? I love yeah. him. 
Um, they're there to reopen the camp in time for the summer, but someone has another idea. And pretty soon, as the storm bears down, they're being knocked off one by one. Um, the real major difference between this film and the sequels, with the exception of part five, is that there is kind of this minor mystery around it. Uh, it's not really a fair mystery, since we've never given enough clues to uh, figure out who's responsible for the murders. Mm. Uh, but we are given a number of mysteries as well. It's no Agatha Christie, it's not even really a weaker Midsummer murder, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but there is a slight air of like, oh, I wonder what's going on. You yeah. Know, just a little diversion. Whereas, we, except for part five, all the rest of them are, you know exactly what's happening. Yeah. You know, no surprises. Um, the first thing I really appreciated rewatching this one is how great the music is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the score by Harry Manfredini is just deliciously pulpy. He reused his theme from the little known horror gem, The Children. And just added some psycho style stings to the mix, and of course the voice samples, yeah. which are apparently ma which is kill mum, mm. kill a mummy. Uh, it's a really important iconic piece of music that'll get used in like all the sequels. Mm. Um, although part seven kind of butchers it a bit. Um, right. The other thing that stood out to me was what a normal, pretty well rounded bunch of teens the slot are. Yeah. Um, there is the inevitable prankster, but it's hardly his defining characteristic. In the sequels, he'd be insufferable. Um, and played for pure comic relief. That's how he'd be treated. Here he's just one of the crew. And, and likewise, people smoke pot, but they're not really pot heads. Mm. Um, and even Alice, who's the eventual final girl, smokes weed, has a beer, and plays a game of strip monopoly. <laughs> Which leads me to onto a question we should sort of sort out here is, what is the final girl? You know, mm. If you're new to Slasherdom, the final girl is the, the woman, always a woman, who somehow survives to the end and faces down the villain. The killer, up to this point, is like the superhuman death machine, seemingly teleporting around, chasing down victims while only ever walking and remaining largely unseen, despite normally being like this hulking engine of death. Once the final girl shows up, it's like Superman with a lump of kryptonite in his tights. Suddenly he's fallible, he's killable, and he's kind of clumsy, you know? It's like he's lost interest or become bored or something. Yeah. One of the theories you hear a lot is that the victims have all been killed for their sins, their weed smoke, smoking, alcohol drinking, and of course their predilection for premarital sex. The final girl is supposed to defeat the villain by remaining virtuous, but it's a theory that doesn't, you know, always hold up. Mm. I mean, Alice in this film is no more innocent than anyone else. If anything, I reckon the final girl is just kind of more focused and less likely to be distracted by temptations. Yeah. You know, it's not like she wouldn't give in to them, but she's, she's got her eyes open. Mm. And everyone else seems kind of blind to the world around them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, back to our teens. I, I felt when I was watching this, what I wouldn't give for a schlubby nerd to hate or a comically horny jerk to despise, you know? Maybe a prom princess who thinks she's better than everyone else. Because the problem with this lot is that it's just not that much fun. Mm. I want some characters to despise or to laugh at. We know they're just there to die anyway. Mm. So we might as well get some fun out of them on the way. Uh, the sequel's got that right, but this lot are just kind of boring. Yeah. I mean, it's more real and it feels more grounded, but it also feels like, ah, yeah. it's engaging because of that. Yeah, it's not a great journey, is it? Like, no. to kind of follow them. You're just waiting for them to be fodder, basically. Yeah, and you're not really invested enough to care that they become fodder, no. but nor are you entertained by them enough to think, oh, man, I can't wait to see how you go. Mm. <laughs> The gore is mostly top draw, uh, thanks to FX genius Tom Savini, who come back for part four, uh, who's made an art of realistic wounds that squirt blood and axes and machetes pounded into people's skulls. Unfortunately, there are very few inventive deaths. Um, and a lot that happened off screen as well, which I was really surprised by. A lot, mm. a lot of it is just finding bodies, you know? Yeah. Uh, Kevin Bacon, in an early performance, gets the pick of them, getting impaled by a spike driven through his back and out through his neck while lying on his bunk, which is 
geysers of blood, you know, yeah. wonderful. But the lead-ups to the text, it is so lacking in tension. At one point, we follow Alice around and she brews a cup of coffee in just this long, single take. <laughs> um, the only drama coming from watching her try not to look like she's struggling with the coffee lid at one point, when you know she is, you go, yeah. oh, you're, you're just trying to concentrate and get that done, eh? <laughs> Um, thankfully the final twist and I, I won't reveal it, but I'm sure most people know it is, is still great. I mean, mm. it really holds up. It's, it's ridiculous. It's silly, but a hundred percent works Yeah, as well as kind of giving them a, just a thin window of a chance to do a, a sequel. Yeah. Um, so look, my rankings for this one, uh, the body count of 11. Yeah. That's pretty low as far as the series goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm giving the kills eight masks out of 13, mm-hmm. a wonderful effects. They really are. But there's not a lot of inventiveness to it, and a lot of them happen off screen. Uh, the final confrontation, I'm giving six masks out of 13. Mm-hmm. Um, Betsy Palmer gives it a roar, but the fight feels tepid. Yeah. Um, as you'd expect from an elderly actress, <laughs> yeah. you know, attempting to throw around another actress. Music, 13 out of 13. Yeah. This is the one. This is iconic, man. Nice. This sets the scene. And for style, I'm giving it three hockey masks out of 13, mostly because they have these eerie shots of the lake at night, which are accidentally eerie I feel that yeah. is still shots but the setting is so iconic and great and I'll give it an extra mask there for the dip to white effect right. which I, I love seeing they do it all the time in Friday 13 yeah. it's this <laughs> transition de jour and um, I've got, I get such, such a kick out of it every time I see it Friday yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 13 is essentially a, a knockoff of Halloween right you know yeah more I mean? or less yeah. more or less but when I was a kid it was outstripped Halloween like Halloween was nowhere it was it was Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, that were the two big ones. Yep. That's why that something like Freddy vs. Jason is very much of our generation. Cause we're like, man, they were the two giants. You know, I, I th- like I, Stallone and Rambo. Yeah, I think the thing is the Friday the 13th sequels are better than the Halloween sequels. Yeah. So that's why it becomes this juggernaut, yeah. because the sequels hold up better. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, Kevin Bacon as well. Kevin Bacon, yeah. Like I say, the, team, the performances by all these kids is pretty good. Yeah. And their characters actually feel quite real, but yeah. that's just not enticing stuff i guess i'm conditioned by the sequels which are just ridiculous and fun yeah. and goofy and, and, and this one's not yeah but it, nor is it scary enough to be a straight horror film so. yeah it's kind of like fast and the furious series isn't it first couple are kind of a bit like <laughs> a bit a bit bland and then it just goes completely batshit nuts so. yeah yeah there's a yeah. sweet spot and yeah i'm yeah i'd argue there's a sweet spot somewhere and we'll talk about what that sweet spot is yeah yeah yeah, yeah but same with fast and the furious by the sounds oh, of totally, it totally totally yeah <laughs> So on to Friday the 13th, part two, from 1981. Friday the 13th, uh, the original, had a twist reveal of the killer. But then it throws the cheap yet effective shock of Jason leaping forth from the lake. Uh, it admittedly takes its cues from the final scene of De Palma's carry. Uh, but then it builds a franchise around it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's got to like the end of carry and, you know, when her hand comes yeah, smashing yeah, up yeah. through the grave and it's like, okay, now we're going to make like a zombie carry for, for like eight films now for the next 20 years. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> so what Halloween 2 and Friday the 13th part 2 have in common is that they are often derided sequels that are transparent cash-ins, but they are also add significant motivational elements to the central villain's myths. They were also initially going to be news stories that had nothing to do with the previous film. Right. Just an, an, just an anthology horror films that kids would come to every year. It's called Friday the 13th. It's about something else. And same mm. with Halloween. It, was, it happens on Halloween. Here it is. However, both films fell under the weight of their towering... However, both films fell under the weight of their towering antagonist. But would eventually try to break free from them 
and both would go scurrying back forever to the knife-wielding arms of Jason and Michael Myers after the perceived failure of those rogue entries. Mm. What a lot of people forget, say, like with Halloween 2, is that the whole family obsession that Michael Myers has isn't in the original. No. That comes from the Halloween 2. Yeah, that's right. Um, which people, you know, I didn't realise until I rewatched it. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. That's where it crazy. comes from, yeah. Yeah, and so this is very much the same with Jason as the killer. Yeah. Uh, Friday the 13th Part 2 doesn't stray very far from formula. Instead, it has another bunch of campers, this time older teens, doing a crash course on camp counselling and running afoul of an unseen murderer. It begins with a recap as subtle as a previously on intro to a TV show. Yeah. It has Alice, the sole survivor of the first instalment, being killed in her home. Yeah. Which seems like a pretty mean thing to do. Totally. Uh, it's kind of like when Newt and Hicks survived all of aliens only to kill him off in the credit sequence of alien three. Yeah. And somehow I don't think that's the last alien reference we'll have in this podcast when it comes to Friday. The no, Day. no, it's not I, I'm <laughs> just about, I don't know what else you've got to say about that, but yeah. it's because she uh, developed a stalker after being a huge star on Friday 13th. Right. So she refused to come back for any more. Right. Because the idea was to base it around her in each sequel. So right. she would, she would um, be a star going forward. She'd be like Ripley. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> but she was freaked out by her association with the film yeah. and um, just wanted to get killed off quickly. Right. By the way, how do you think Jason planned this murder? So yeah. she goes to her fridge. Mm. Am I right? Opens yeah. up. There's a head waiting for her. Yeah. So he broke into her house quietly, snuck yeah. around, put her head in the fridge, waited for her to find it yeah. the whole time. Yeah. It's elaborate. It is. Yeah, and th- I mean, this scene in Alice's flat has standard kind of cat jumps and phone calls where clearly no one else is on the other end of the line. <laughs> That's just brilliant. It's like, I literally think I could have done a better version of uh, yeah. of talking to a, a dead phone. And it finishes with an exploding title card from Friday the 13th, and it explodes into part two, oh, accompanied that. by admittedly great intro music. I was like, yeah, I was almost cheering at the TV for that because it was just so kind of cheesy 80s in a good way. This opening doesn't do it any favours in trying to remove itself from being a Halloween knockoff as well. No. She gets a phone call, and then they kind of hang out straight away. Does that seem like something Jason would know how to do? And he does even number? Well, I mean, he, he followed her to this house. Yeah, but then how's he calling her? And why, where's he calling her from? Yeah, a lot of questions about this. Yeah, thing. and um, he, he does this really nice thing of removing the kettle off the stove. Yeah. It's a really considerate thing for him to do, eh? Yeah. Yeah. After he just slaughtered her. brought him up right. Yeah. yeah. Say what you will about the boy. (laughs) And then we kind of like race on to, you know, more teens getting slaughtered, basically. The fan favorite, Crazy Ralph, the you're all doomed hermit, Mm -hmm. makes a welcome return, but is swiftly dispatched. Um, I thought it was a genuinely good truck towing misdirect where these these teenagers turn up and they're not too sure where to go and they're in the small town. And then suddenly their, their truck starts getting towed just after Crazy Ralph told them they're all doomed and stuff. Right. And they're racing after the truck, and you're like, oh, they're going to get stuck here, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you don't really know what it is, and it ends up just being a prank being play, played by their friends. Yeah. And I actually thought that I'd forgotten that that happened. I was like, oh, that's actually pretty pretty good. It's a good little, nice little unusual moment. And also, so is when they find a, a, a kind of discarded, covered-up Camp Crystal Lake sign. Mm. Yeah, really nice. I've got a bunch of categories here. So I've got the, the hedonism of the victims which I gave a 6 out of 13 hockey masks. Uh, Fairly standard 80s teen behavior of underage drinking, skinny dipping, and premarital sex. So, you know, there's a bit going on, but, you know. Characters really suffers. 3 out of 13 hockey masks. This is thin on the ground. Every character is just interchangeable and not memorable at all. 
not helped by collectively the worst acting of the series, I think, maybe. Okay. Um, yep. Yep. Part uh, three has got something to say to you, but we'll get yeah. to that. <laughs> but however, Jason Mythic's position, 13 out of 13 hockey solid, masks. Solid. This is, if you'll pardon the pun, an absolutely killer Jason Myth exposition scene. And the blank slate of an actor, I don't even know who his name is, it's just like clearly inspired by it because he delivers it really well. Mm. While huddled around a campfire at night with the other teenagers, he lays out the whole Jason story, yep. his mother's revenge and then Jason's revenge on the survivor who was seeking revenge for her friends who were killed by Jason's mother as revenge for, yep. you know, I'm repeating myself, but then again, so does this film for the most part. Um, with the opening flashbacks and this campfire scene, I think this film may commit to the Jason Myth exposition more than any other entry. Yeah, po- quite possibly. I yeah. I know the the scene you're talking about. Yeah. Two is one of the ones I haven't returned to a lot. And I, yeah. if I was to give you one really bad reason for that, and mm-hmm. it's a, such a superficial reason, it's that it's that Hessian sack he wears on his head. <laughs> yeah, the burlap sack. I just I yeah. just can't deal with that. Yeah, yeah fair like, enough. He's got to wear a hockey mask or it doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. So I struggle with that. But this... Um, scene you're talking about is wonderful. It's foundational yeah, stuff. It is. It's great. Look, dancing scenes. I, I've gone into dancing scenes. Yeah, well, you've got a few. I have a few, yes. And look, eight out of 13 hockey masks for this. Uh, this has some quality, awful dancing to music that clearly isn't being played. <laughs> and everyone's like really into it, even though it's turned down way too low for what should be like a raging rave-up teenage party. I suspect that the actors didn't account for the fact that there'll be music played. So... They just talk at their normal volume, so then they had to drop the music down. Others, you right, really, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's quality, but the, the dancing there is good. It's good 1981 dancing. Awesome. Uh, lead protagonist. Look, I, I'm going to give this a controversial 10 out of 13 hockey masks. Really? Yes. And I'm bumping Ginny. I had to look up her name because she's largely forgettable, but I bumped her up for the end of this film in which she shows adequate suspicion that something is wrong. Yeah. Uh, she's cautious. Yes. Calm. She shows incredible smarts psychologically tricking Jason by kind of dressing as his mother and scolding him like an angry mother would. Uh, if only she had stayed standing in front of Jason's mother's severed head for a few seconds longer. Close uh, uh, it, eh? Yeah, but I... That's, and that leads nicely into the climax, which is a lot of the reason I give the lead protagonist such high marks is because I give the climax 9 out of 13 hockey masks. Wow, strong. The climax of the film is a standout. It has the twisted scene of Jason seeing visions of his mother as mm. the heroine pretends to be her. And, of course, there is the striking image of a deformed adult Jason smashing through the black window and grabbing the heroine in slow-mo. Yeah. And this is one of my earliest memories of Jason. So it sticks with me as being actually really iconic. Yeah. And I think that would be the reason that I'd say to watch this film. Uh, would yeah. be that fire, Jason Myth exposition around the fire scene and this climax. Right. Uh, you can almost skip the rest of the film. Uh, cinematic carnage, you know, the quality of the carnage. I'm yep. just giving it a measly four out of 13 hockey masks. It's kind of devoid of, of much of the excessive carnage that's in the later series. A poultry seven deaths plus one off screen. Yeah, that's low, eh? That's really low. There's a memorably odd vision of a freshly dead victim in his wheelchair hurtling down a set of stairs as night at night while rain pours down. Yeah, if you ask me to remember any of the kills, that's the only one I could recall. Yeah, it's just just something kind of really nasty about that. Yeah. The first death occurs after just three minutes. Fast. Um, Yeah, but there is a very barren and sorely missed 30 minutes between the first and second murders, Uh, which is interminable. Yeah, that's long. Yeah, so the deaths are ice pick to the head, 
mm. for one. Two is garroted. Three, claw hammer to the skull. Four, machete to throat. Five, machete to the face. And wheelchair rolls swiftly down the stairs. Six, fornicating couple impaled by spear. Iconic. And seven, super slow moving knife to the torso. Like super slow going yeah. for them. That spear is, of course, um, taken from Mary Barber's Twitch the Death Nerve. Yeah. Uh, which this film takes a lot from. Right. Yeah, and so that's uh, that's part two there. I'm going to have to rewatch it. I know that because it's the one. This and eight uh, are the ones I've seen the least and right. been least, least inclined to revisit, mm. uh, as well as nine, which, of course, I have revisited. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, that's, that's interesting. It's, yeah. it's, it's good to hear some... Some favourable comments about it. Yeah. yeah. You're going to camp blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph. Get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Well, look, I was shocked. Shocked, I say, when we were divvying up, divvying up the series to watch. And my illustrious co-host described Friday the 13th Part 3 as, was it arduous? <laughs> arduous, you just call, you called it? I mean, how could that be? Mm. How could it be arduous, Duncan? I mean, this was one of my favourite of the series. One of the entries that made me happy about getting the odds uh, instead of the evens. But having watched it, I can see what Duncan means. Um, the first half is pretty ponderous. Though it's alleviated somewhat by the fact that part three was originally a 3D film. Uh, and while the version you watch now isn't in three, d- three dimensions, obviously, the ridiculous tricks and gimmicks they put in to take advantage of the technology still remain. And they are wonderful, wonderfully laughable. Mm. Uh, people juggle, and the cameras above them is that the balls sail up towards the camera. Uh, joints are passed straight into the lens. When someone plays with the yo-yo, the camera's on the floor, so the yo-yo almost smashes into the audience's faces, which I love. And my personal favourite, a guy tries to put up a clothesline and waves at the tip of the pole at the screen for just ages, eh? <laughs> yeah, such trouble, and it's just you know, right in your faces. Yeah. Part three also has some of the worst performances of the series. So really... Going, you know, toe-to-toe with part two. Shelley, a curly-haired schlub, they apparently found handing out flyers on the street and thought, hey, he'd be good in a movie. Uh, as the practical joker who can't get any action. Mm. His acting is limited. But he's still one of my favourite things about the first half of this film, simply because he's such a moron, you know? Mm. He's constantly annoying his campmates and acting like a sap when hot girl Vera really gently rebuffs him, quite politely, I think. And he calls her like a bitch under his breath in response. <laughs> such a jerk. He's a guy you want to see slaughtered, but also want to stick around because he livens everything up while he is on screen, you know? Mm. That double-edged sword, double-edged machete, you know? <laughs> and then there's Chili, one half of the hippie couple with their bandanas and bongs, uh, whose screams were walking nonchalantly around the house as if she's misplaced her keys and she's trying to find them, you know? Yeah. I mean, her voice tells me she's terrified, but her movements act like she's just dawdling. <laughs> you know, take as much time as she can. The kills, though, are wonderful in this one, really mm. solid. We start with a simple cleaver to the chest 15 minutes in, but the quality of the deaths really es- escalates once Jason kind of gets into a stride and gets his mojo going. Though as Duncan brought to my attention, that stride takes way too long. Uh, the next death is 42 minutes in. Whoa. Yeah, so there's a you know 27-minute gap, and that's a simple fork to the belly. And there's a lot of long-handled weapon attacks in this film. Mm. But that's so that the handles can waggle in the direction of the screen, you know? <laughs> For so the 3D effect. Yeah, yeah, so we can see that just in, just right in our faces. And even though you can't appreciate the 3D, the gimmick still makes some great slayings. Um, Jason, now now in his iconic hockey mask, so I'm happy mm. about that. Uh, courtesy of Shelley's practical joke kit. Fires a spear gun straight at the camera. 
and into Paul Vera's eye, which mm. is a wonderful practical effect. Uh, later, handsome Hansy Rick has his head crushed and his eyeball springs out like on this wire mm-hmm. towards the camera. Uh, I love that. It's so, so chumpy. <laughs> wonderful. And then there's my favourite kill in this movie, and perhaps in the entire Friday the 13th series. Uh, athletic Andy is walking around the house on his hands when Jason appears and cuts him down the middle, mm. straight between his legs. Um, there's a splash of blood, but it's otherwise quite a gorgeous scene. Mm. But why it works is there's some quick cuts, and in the middle of that, there's a key shot from beneath what must have been a glass floor they built for him to collapse onto. Mm. And it just makes that scene just work, you know? Yeah. It's really brief, but there's something just like, oh, you just wince when you know that that machete went down his groin. Yeah. You know? It sliced him right in half. Yeah, and like there's only a little splash of blood, but it sells it. Mm. Uh, the final confrontation between Jason and final girl Chris is terrific, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason fires the first salvo by throwing Rick's corpse through a window, and that's a Friday the 13th trope I can never get enough of. <laughs> this body's being thrown through windows, you know? <laughs> yeah. But Chris is a resourceful final girl. She doesn't just run away, but at one point doubles back to ambush Jason, which I always think, nah, take some guts, you know? And Jason runs in this film as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it kind of hobbles since Chris had stabbed him in the leg earlier. And it's so much more dramatic than the slow walk he uses in almost every other instalment. You know, you see him like scrambling after and creates a little bit of tension, which you don't often get. Mm. And there's some great iconic Friday moments in their final battle barn as well. Uh, Chris strings Jason up and hangs him from the roof towards the... Towards the camera, naturally. He drops straight down towards the camera. And Jason reacts by simply lifting himself from the noose, revealing his hideously deformed face, and then just dropping back on the ground to go after her again. It's one of my favourite makeup jobs in the franchise, too. Right. It doesn't look as fake as some of the makeups. You yeah. Know? Like I can remember watching Nine, and it just looked like he'd been bee stung quite badly. But <laughs> yeah. here, it's like there's a real believability to it, you know? Yeah. And finally, Chris finishes Jason off with an axe to the head. But before Jason goes down, he throws his arms up, Frankenstein, monster style, you know, kind of stumbles straight towards us. It's a great moment, and I'm sure in 3D it will look even better with his hands and the axe handle just straight out of the camera, you know. So, look, despite the first half being really slow, as as Duncan quite rightly pointed out to me, and despite some ropey performances, this one scores pretty high for me. Mm -hmm. And eye-popping 12 out of 13, literally eye-popping, <laughs> 12 out of 13 hockey masks for the kills. Nice. And 10 out of 13 for the final confrontation. Shelley gets eight hockey masks for being purely annoying, um, though the rest of the cast get about a four for performance. Because though I'm a big Chris fan, I'm not such a big fan of Chili and her sort of half-hearted panic. Right. Yeah. I wonder if there's still a... 3D print of this floating around. I believe there is. They must be able to play it and you can yeah. check on 3D glasses. Yeah. They, they should release that on, because you've got 3D TV now, 3D TV. Right. To... I, I don't know a lot about the technology, but I understand the way they did the 3D means you can't, it's difficult to translate to a home right. viewing experience. Okay. But with the original print, and there is the original print, so they do have screenings of this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I, uh, I I casually threw away the uh, threw out that line like it was arduous, but I think I was kind of overstating it. My my one was my memory of that was more, and this was from from rewatching it uh, again, probably about like five six years ago. I watched I watched a couple of them, probably watched about four of these just randomly. They were on Sky, and I watched them, and this was one of them. And the reason I say that it was it was arduous was because it's very static. He's in that barn the whole time and everyone has to come to him yeah and that i didn't like i didn't i didn't like everyone having to come into that barn and then he was just killing them in the in the same spot that i got tired of that i think uh more than anything 
uh, and it just took so long to get going. As you say, it's got so many iconic moments, and this really is uh, in the sweet spot, you know, where we are now between three and four. This is really when Friday the yeah. 13th was, back in the 80s, was huge. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying about the barn. The barn becomes the place of murder. Yeah. Um, but there are so many moments from this. Like, when I think of classical Friday the 13th moments, a lot of them are this film. Mm. You know, this film and, you know, some of the others we'll talk about, but mm. I just, some of these images, images, yeah. just, oh, they really hold. And now we're on to Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter from 1984. Oh, so we're all done after this yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. It's this one and out. Yeah. Oh, cool. After the events of part three, Jason's corpse is taken to the morgue where he awakens, kills the staff, and returns to Camp Crystal Lake. At his old stomping ground is a house full of horny drinking teens, but also a cabin with a mother and her two children, Trish and Tommy Jarvis. While down by the lake, a mysterious young man named Rob has set up camp, and he's out for revenge. Yeah, now look, this has got some sweet 80s video game action. I think they're yes. playing Gaxon or something like that, yep. which is quality. Feldman's playing that. For those that don't know, Corey Feldman is Tommy Jarvis, the boy in this. Mm-hmm. This is pre-Goonies, the year before he did Goonies. This is pre-Stand By Me. Yep. So I think this is pretty much the first thing that launched him. Yep. Uh, and of course... Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover. George McFly himself. Say hi to your mom for me. Uh, he's in there. So, you know, you've got Feldman and Glover. Yeah. I mean, what a what a nut set that would have been. There's this great part where Feldman's leaping around his bed like an excited monkey at the anticipation of seeing a topless woman through his... Um, oh. His reactions is just... Oh, such a good performance. It's just otherworldly. Look, remember that I mentioned how good the Jason Exposition campfire scene in part two was? Yep. Well, it was good enough to form the basis of the opening montage of part four. Yes, they replay the whole thing here, cut in with murders from all three previous films. Um, there's, I love this recap, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And I actually think this is an excellent recap. And this leads into my first score, which is Jason Mythology Exposition. Mm-hmm. 10 out of 13 hockey masks. It's opening montage of previous deaths set to the same story from part two. It's both bonus points and minus points. Um, to kind of break even, really. It, it's so derivative because it uses everything mm. from before. But it's such an effective way to inform the uninitiated yep. as to what's going on, and it's actually quite artfully done. Yep. Uh, it also has Feldman finding the newspaper clippings about Jason, w- which I kind of feel happens a little bit too late. Mm. It's kind of why all the carnage is going on. I thought they could have got to that a bit earlier right? and kind of built that up a little bit more. And an artist's rendition of um, Jason which uh, Feldman then uses to kind of chop his hair off and become Jason yep. to, uh, in order to control him. Uh, it's just like uh, over-the-top comedy yell acting from like the horny hospital nurse and mortician couple oh, at the beginning. man. And, of course, the mortician eats dinner over his corpse, you know, classic. Th- and this leads into characters, which I give eight out of 13 hockey masks. Glover and Feldman, two of Hollywood's most entertainingly unhinged 80s actors, make their characters... More interesting just by merely occupying the roles, uh, especially Glover. I mean, he's just. I remember always hearing that story about um, Usual Suspects and Benicio del Toro, kind of becoming a, becoming noticed out of that because he just went, "Well, my character's here just to die, 
So I'm just going to go, I'm just going to be crazy with him. And it's basically the same as Glover where he's like, well, I'm just here to die. So I'm just going to make this guy unforgettable. Well, every Friday the 13th, I always post on our Facebook page, Glover's dancing scene. On yeah. It was wonderful. But I also love his delivery of the line, hey, Ted, have you seen that corkscrew? That fancy corkscrew. <laughs> yeah. Fancy corkscrew just <laughs> makes my day. Yeah. Look, you, you bring up the dancing scene. So dancing scenes. 13 out of 13 hockey masks. Could not be any other number. Yep. Glover's insane dance moves are seminal, if only on the Spoiler Alert Facebook page, which, as you say, gets posted every Friday the 13th. Yep. But this is the Friday the 13th dancing scene by which all other dancing scenes in the series are measured by for, for us. It really is. Then lead protagonist. Look, I'm going to give this a 12 out of 13 hockey masks. And Tommy Jarvis is such a memorable presence in the series, and it all really begins here mm. with Feldman's weirdly effective performance. Uh, a fun-loving boy with peculiar and useful interests like making horror masks who descends into just batshit mania and stays on the edge of it for the next two films, the character does. But also the film has dual protagonists as Tommy's older sister Trish is a resilient survivor. Yeah, I always like Trish. Trish is one of my faves. Yeah, yeah. And um, Hedonism of the Victims, 12 out of 13 hockey masks, underage drinking, skinny dipping, partner stealing, voyeurism, intercourse, Losing a virginity. This is quality, top quality teen hedonism from the 80s and exactly the kind of events the films like Scream were mocking. Yeah. It's it's excellent. I, I mean, would, there are hot twins skinny dipping. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Man. And stealing each other's like, love yeah, interests yeah, yeah, and yeah. trying to get it on with like guys who are coupled up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's great. And, uh, I also like the guy who, um, with his dead dick line. Yeah, yeah keeps yeah. calling him dead dick. Yeah, wonderful, that guy. Yeah, yeah. The thing he really bothers me when he's just cackling maniacally for no reason at an old stag film that's playing on a projector. And and one scene, okay, two's too much. But he does it for like thirty minutes. It feels like it just goes on forever. And it's like, yeah, it's. And I don't even think he's smoking weed, or is he? He is at least drunk. Yeah, he's drunk, but. Yeah, some of that wine that they got out of the bottle with the fancy corkscrew. You know, the fancy corkscrew. The fancy corkscrew. And now, quality of the carnage of the kills, 10 out of 13 hockey masks. What's best about these kills, and the second half especially, is the tension that the makers employ before the murders occur. Deaths one and two occur in the first five minutes, and that's the mortician mm-hmm. and uh, and nurse couple we talked about. Yeah. So the deaths are bone saw to the neck, then twisted off. Mm. Two is gutted with knife. Three, knife through throat. Four, stomached in the knife while lying in a rubber dinghy. Five, spear gun to the groin. Six, machete through the back. Seven, corkscrew, fancy corkscrew, to the hand, followed by meat cleaver to the face. Yeah, good combo. Which is, which is, which is how Glover goes down. Yeah. It's a good way to go. That was a quality kill. Yeah, that, that really one. was. Um, eight, one of Simon's favorite, pulled through a window on the second floor and thrown onto a car below. Yeah. Nine, knife through a projector screen to the back of the head. I love that one. To the cackling, annoying yeah, git. Dead dick. 10, head crushed in shower. 11, axe to the stomach. And 12, club to death with tools, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then we come to climax, which I'm going to give a really strong 13 out of 13 hockey masks. The final third, not just the climax, but the final third of the final chapter is perhaps, I think, the strongest final third of the series. Except maybe you're talking about three might be up there as well, so I'll have to rewatch that. But for, for the ones I watched, it was the strongest. Mm. It takes the creeping dread and horror very seriously, and does a great job with the tension. The pitch black basements and dark stairwells have a, have a foreboding around every corner, 
Uh, this finale takes its time, and the gap between the penultimate victim's death and the final victim's death is used very well to create suspense. Feldman losing his mind and slaughtering Jason with his own machete and then raining down blow after blow while his sister screams in terror at her little brother's bloodlust. A really striking image. Mm. And the twist of having a victim become a murderer must have influenced Halloween 4's shock ending too. Mm. Where, again, these things cross over, these, these series cross over. Yep. When the little girl in 4 who has been chased for the whole film by the villain ends up assuming her tormentor's mantle and killing as well. And I, I can't think, but there was at least a, a subconscious influence. Yeah, I think these films kind of paint themselves into a corner a little bit too. Yeah. They, they feel they have to kill their villains off at some point, but they have to leave room for a, a sequel. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I'm not going to argue about which of those, those two have the best climax, because they're mm. very different climaxes. Yeah. Part three is more like a, um, a gruey kind of how many ways can we beat on Jason climax. Yeah. But, boy, as you say, it's a much more effective yeah. The horror movie com- um, uh, confrontation. And I think um, director Joseph Zito has a really nice look to this film. Yeah. I think it's the prettiest looking of any of the films we watched to this point. Mm-hmm. It's just really well shot. The carnage is also really well done as well. I yeah. mean, those effects are brilliant. It's Tom Savini returning as well to do yeah. this. And uh, apparently when he does those applications and, and um, th- those effects, he directs the, the kills. Right, yeah. Because, of course, he's setting up so he knows how they need to be shot. Sure, yeah. And um, I love how Jason goes down in this film. Yeah. Love it. It's superb. Yeah. It's such a, such a complex effect, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's really good. I, I, I was quite, Like I say, I, was, I always knew 4 is right up there. It's a big fan favorite. It's a favorite of Simon's in it. And, and it has so many iconic moments in there. But it, it, I think up to this point, it's probably the most effective. And it's probably one of the most straightforward thrillers. Uh, yeah, you know, it's got that silliness at the beginning, but once it gets through that, especially that kind of second half, last third, yeah, yeah, there's not too much kind of goofiness in there. No, it's great stuff. Mm. Hey Ted, where's where's that uh, that corkscrew, that fancy corkscrew for the wine bottle? Right, so that was the final chapter. So there's no more, right? No, I no, guess not. Oh, uh, hang on. No, I've got Wait. some of my notes. What? Friday the Thirteenth Part Five: The New Beginning. Oh, oh well, that's okay. Convenient. Here we go. So sorry. Hold off on that, folks. Surely it'll just be this one more. Look, I, I told the story earlier on, but this was the first Friday film I ever watched. I remember it having an uncomfortable minute of nudity, and of course I was watching it with my mum. After watching it, and I'm pretty sure she was lying to me about this, she said, it was pretty good. <laughs> Bless her. I'm, I'm, oh, sure, yes. I'm sure that wasn't true. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it has a special place in my heart, but I know that very few Voorheesians feel the same way, because it doesn't have Jason in it. So Jason was finished off pretty convincingly back in part four there. And they now had the old, how do we keep the franchise going problem. The obvious answer is that someone else has to pop on the hockey mask, grab a machete and pick up the slack, which is what happens. Well, the film itself half-heartedly strings us along in another mystery about who the new killer could be. It's pretty darned obvious who it is, by the way. Even if they cheat by only giving us clues once we know Jason's killer's, the fake Jason's identity. But it's pretty obvious anyway, just because, like somebody said, Somebody say something like, ah, I wonder who's behind us. And somebody go, are you talking to me there, chief? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you. It's you. No reason, no clues to put it together, but, you know. Yeah. They just seem so guilty. Just signposted. Just sign- yeah, it really yeah. is. But on rewatching, I like this one quite a bit. Uh, more than I expected, actually. It starts with a dream sequence. Uh, Corey Feldman returning as Tommy Jarvis to witness two idiots digging up the grave of Jason Voorhees, <laughs> who naturally still has his machete and hockey mask in the grave with him, mm. which I love, and dispatches the grave job robbers fairly swiftly. Jarvis then wakes from his dream, now a teen in the care of the Unger Mental Institute, being taken to a centre for troubled youth. 
somewhere conveniently in the woods that is also conveniently full of the usual group of disparate but mostly horny teens. Mm-hmm. There's also a pretty young therapist named Pam, and you just know that she's going to be the final girl, right? As soon as mm-hmm. you see her, you know? Yeah. How you can pick them real fast yeah. most of the time. And her name's Pam, right? So yeah. Pamela Voorhees. Oh, of course. Mm. But she just seems like, I say, more together. Yeah. Yeah. Jarvis is now this rangy, kind of sullen kid given to explosive rages and acts of violence, which the film actually films really well. I mean, he's convincingly really aggressive when he goes mm-hmm. loco, you know? With his glasses, he looks like a simmering John Boy from the Waltons, you know? And he's played by John Shepard, an actor who, like many former Florida the 13 stars, has done everything he can to distance himself from his part. <laughs> um, and look, the dude should be proud. Yeah. This is great stuff. You know, yeah. solid performance and a <laughs> solid entry. First death comes in about 20 minutes, which is a long time to wait, but it's actually, the film is intriguing enough up to that point, you know, because yeah. we're in a different place. So when this comically pudgy kid, I mean, he has candy bars in his pockets, just falling out of his pockets, <laughs> you know, and he has chocolate smeared around his mouth like a circus clown's makeup. I mean, they're not going for subtlety in this one, you yeah. know, is hacked up by Rage Monster Vic, a muscle-bound teen who has, for no doubt, terrible, terrible reasons, been assigned as the camp woodchopper. <laughs> you know, and he's got one of those axes with the blade on both sides of the mm-hmm. axe head, and I can't think why you would have that. And I yeah. don't think why you'd give it to this guy, dude who is so obviously aggressive and angry about being there. Yeah. It's an off-screen death, but we are treated to this gruesome pile-up of um, body parts. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, from there, the deaths come pretty thick and fast. Two leather-clad greasers are knocked off when their car breaks down, and I'm reminded of one of my favourite unrealistic tropes of the series. People talk to themselves. All the time. <laughs> Everyone who wanders into the woods narrates the experience of wandering into the woods to themselves and yeah. the frustrations they're having, you know? Every young woman admiring her breasts in a mirror, which happens several times in this film, okay, so it's not an unusual occurrence, has to comment on them. Mm-hmm. And everyone angrily waiting for someone has to voice their frustrations to the void. <laughs> um, I don't think I ever talk to myself when I'm alone, you know? Yeah. But everyone in a Friday the 13th film seems to. Yeah. Uh, the trope reaches its creative nadir, I think, when someone sings their thoughts in a hilariously, supposedly spontaneous, curseful ditty. I kind of mm-hmm. like that, that yeah. you know, they've just taken it next level. The best murder spree comes when two youngsters nip off into the woods for some weed and a bit of premarital sex. Uh, that can only end one way, really. Though the inventiveness of her death by hedge trimmers and by his, his by having his head crushed by a belt, twisted around a tree and over his eyes and just tightened, ratcheted up until he dies. I, I got a feeling that probably is not going to work, by the mm-hmm. way, but it looks pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure you would get enough torque on that belt to <laughs> actually crush a man's head. Yeah. But her head trimmer death, you don't kind of see it. You see these head trimmers come down right. and then him closing the blade. Nice. So you kind of think, oh, you, know, you can kind of, kind of visualise what's happening. Mm. Also, at some point, Paramount realised that the Friday films were going down a treat with black audiences. So we get a quartet of African-American actors, including young Reggie, a child actor who becomes a major player at the film as the film goes on. Uh, alas, his older brother gets trapped in a corrugated iron outhouse after eating some dodgy enchiladas <laughs> and is impaled by iron spikes driven through the walls, which is truly one of the most uh, least dignified exits in any Friday the 13th movie, you know? Oh, wow. That's saying something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just on the runs, having spikes driven through your legs. <laughs> uh, it's really unfortunate. Uh, there's a redneck mum and idiot son who are pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the mum in particular cursing his son out with the line, you big dildo, eat your fucking slops. <laughs> Which, which is enormous fun. Uh, he gets decapitated. She collapses in her own slops after taking a cleaver to the face, which seemed pleasantly fitting. You mm. know, a nice sense of irony there. Yeah. yeah. 
And then we're at the confrontation. The perfectly synced storm kicks in. And I always like that. Almost all of these, except for Friday the 13th, the first one, which surprised me, have a storm that kicks in as the killing kicks in. Yeah. And um, there's, there's a storm in Auckland today. Yeah. And at one point, I saw the lightning, and I counted two seconds and heard the thunder, and I thought, wow, we're close. I mean, yeah. it's really close. You never have to count in these films, eh? Yeah, it's just immediate, eh? <laughs> it's, it's always synced. Yeah. It's synced for quite a while, so in an eye of a storm for a good 20 minutes <laughs> yeah. while Jason's killing people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in almost every film. Uh, so anyway, the storm kicks in. Reggie finds Jason's body nest. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the way he stores all the bodies together. It's almost like he's a squirrel, like putting away bodies for the winter. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why the final girl catches him, because... He's got all the bodies he needs for his little yeah. section, you know? Yeah. He's not looking for more corpses at that point for his little nest. <laughs> anyway, he unleashes his wonderfully high-pitched screen, which I love. And Pam, as expected, is revealed to be our final girl. There's a moment when they find a guy nailed through the, his skull to a tree. And I found myself wondering how long that nail had to be <laughs> and how sharp and how powerfully it hit to go straight through the front of a man's skull, through his brain, mm. out the back of his skull, and far enough into a tree that it would then support his own weight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably not worth dwelling on, but it's, it, it is something, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's a big nail hit with force. <laughs> like a javelin. It is, eh? Yeah. It's not a normal nail. No. Um, and look, two of my favourite Friday setting tropes occur right here. Jason bursts through a door. I always love when I see that. Bits of door exploding everywhere. He's not throwing a door open. He's exploding a door. Yeah. He does in part four as well. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Delicious. Um. And, of course, he throws a body through a window. Yeah. Always good. Always love those moments. And it's a pretty great final 20. Uh, Reggie gets a crowd-pleasing moment, running down Jason with a tractor to save Pam. Jarvis crops up to chop Jason's hand off. Pam gets to play with the chainsaw, which I thought was quite cool. Mm. And Jason meets a decent bloody end. It finishes with the implication that a mentally fried Tommy Jarvis will take over as the new Jason. And staggeringly, he even managed to have the hockey mask and a large knife with him at the hospital he's recuperating in. <laughs> he's got a drawer he opens and there's a hockey mask and, a, and like a butcher's knife. You're allowed to have your personal effects. Surely you can't. How is that his personal effects? I just leave the guy. Look, he's in a, he's in a mental asylum. Leave him with a large what butcher's knife. What was security knife. doing? Yeah. Anyway, it's all pretty <laughs> decent stuff, even if the Jason is a fake Jason. And I understand yeah. why people are annoyed by that. So I'm going to give it 11 hockey masks out of 13 for the kills. Mm-hmm. They're not the most creative of the series, but they are brutal. Mm-hmm. You know, they are tough. Uh, I'd give it 10 hockey masks for the final confrontation, which has those good old moments you love and some decent resourceful bits of fight back, which mm-hmm. I also enjoy. Even if the barn setting loses points for just being a recreation of the overused barn from part three. <laughs> Finally, part five gets 13 hockey masks out of 13 for auto-narration. Uh, most of those masks <laughs> for the guy who sings about how angry he'll be when his car won't start. <laughs> I love that guy. A um, little bit of a plot problem here. Jason is said to be have been cremated. Right. Yeah. We'll get to that later, but okay. interesting. Yeah. Kill count 17, not counting the dudes who died in the dream sequence. And right. I don't think they really count. Yeah. Even if we got to watch them die. Mm. Cool. Mm. Nice. Well, yeah, I'm pretty certain I haven't seen that now that you've described oh. all of that. I'm pretty certain I have not seen that one. Oh, actually. right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Because I don't think I've ever seen anything without Jason and even a fake Jason. The other thing is, again, I keep coming back to Halloween because when we were going through these, I realized how much they crossover and of course this tried to move away from jason with um with part five just this is the season of the witch isn't it of of the friday the 13th series well i don't know because season of the witch clearly has no connection to yeah. halloween whereas this is it is a friday the 13th sequel tommy jarvis is there yeah. they they talk about the events of 
people go, it's Jason, it must be Jason. And mm. people are going, ah, but he was cremated. And, yeah. You know, so it, it's connected, but it's just... Kind of the movement away, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's trying to establish a new timeline or a yeah. new set of events. So, yeah. 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 Anyway, so hey, that's our first five. It is. It's our first five. And so, um, yeah, well, just tune in for part two. Look, yeah. it's a really nice, windy, stormy day here and uh, evening, I should say. Yeah. In, uh, in Auckland here. Yeah. So we're just going to take a quick break and we'll record episode two, six to ten. Yeah. I'm going to pop up, pop up, pop out to my panel van and see if I've got some weed in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Duncan's right. going to go and check the fuse box. Yeah. I'll just go listen to that. I'll go check where that sound came from down in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if any of the lights are working down there anymore, but. I'm sure Look, there'll be. I, I, sure think, I think as long as we both there. split up and do our own thing, we'll be fine. Yeah, and uh, we'll see you all back here, hopefully, very soon. Yes.